Welcome to Meet the Writersons. Mm, no, now we're just a mid-century sitcom. Stay tuned. Good day and welcome to Writers Get Animated, a podcast about animation, storytelling, and going back in time to be best friends with your dad. I'm Chris Leva. I'm Mackenzie Worrell. And today we're taking a look at the Disney canon. This is part six of our part seven question mark. We're going to get to that in just a moment. Part originally seven parts. Well, originally question mark, then originally seven part. Right. And now question mark again. Uh, <laughs> um, part look at the Disney canon. So this period, we are going through the period that goes from Fantasia 2000 all the way to Meet the Robinsons. And if you did your homework, we asked you to watch Atlantis, The Lost Empire. And Meet the Robinsons. Wow, that was good. That's fancy. And both of them, if you didn't do your homework, both of them are available on the Netflix. I think most of the movies from this period are available on the Netflix. And I don't know what that says about the periods, <laughs> the movies during this period. But Well, um, I think Disney knows that they can spend no marketing money and put this on free streaming platforms to kind of spread the word and like develop new audiences for these films. They don't need to develop new audiences for The Lion King. People are going to go buy that. True. Brother Bear, hey, look, a Disney movie that's on Netflix. Let's just turn that on not knowing what that is. I never watched that one when it was in theaters. Exactly. Like, that was exactly my thought process when I watched it. <laughs> so before we get into the the overview of this, we do have some priority unfinished business to discuss that's very relevant to our topic at hand. So much. So Disney much. news. <laughs> boop, 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 boop. <laughs> yeah. So if you are not following the news somehow and you're listening to this podcast like three or four weeks after it happened or, you know, you're listening to it not when this comes out um, and it's like seven weeks after it happened. <laughs> um, John Lasseter is out. Um, no longer head of Disney Animation for reasons we have previously talked about, and you can easily Google. Um, replacing him is Jennifer Lee as new chief creative officer, um, better known as the writer and director of Frozen. And one of the writers of Wreck-It Ralph. Yes, and many things. And hey, you know what? A woman in charge of Disney Animation... After how many years has it been with just one animated feature film directed by a woman? So long. I feel very positive about this development. I, I do as well. Um, and while I'm also excited about Pete Docter heading Pixar, you know, um, it's, it's a celebration, but it's not as a big of a deal as Jennifer Lee taking the reins of really the story group of, of Disney and being one of the chief people that they look up to for story advice and story ideas. And 
guruness, like general guruness, I, I assume. I just assume it's going to be a huge positive impact on the culture as well. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I think our one of our previous episodes, I talked about being at Pixar and listening to the uh, the talk from the director of the Bow short in front of Incredibles two. And uh, WIA, Women in Animation, they talked about in animation schools, the gender balance is 50-50 men and women. And in actual animation jobs, it's like 20% women. Wow. Yeah. I hope that Jennifer Lee can help fix this for Disney. Yes. There there has to be focus put on that. There, There just has to be. And it's not just for quote, diversity sake. It's honestly to make the stories and characters richer. It could only help. It can only help to get people whose voices haven't been heard, mm-hmm. heard. Was that a pun? Her? Duh? No, it wasn't, but I will, I will go along with it. Chris and McKenzie, two men writing puns for women. <laughs> welcome. I don't know. No. <laughs> no. 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 You not are not welcome. That. No. We're sorry. I mean, That's what we meant to say. <laughs> <laughs> so, what does this mean for our seven part series? Well, if we look through things, we were going through, as we said, this, this goes from the current period that we're talking about today goes from Fantasia 2000 to the um, Meet the Robinsons, which is the post-Disney Renaissance era. I don't think we have a good name for it. Um, um, 40 Years in the Desert? I'm not sure. It's like... (laughs) Um, It's the Passover time. It's like... uh, it's the most, most people pass over this time and then they watch other things. Um, we also have, after this, beginning with Bolt um, to the present, and we thought indefinitely for a good time, long time, was going to be the Disney Enlightenment. So now, because John Lasseter's influence, um, for better or for worse. For better or for, uh, for worse. For better and for worse. Yes. Um, now his influence is ending with, it looks like, Wreck-It Ralph 2 and Frozen 2. We don't know um, when Jennifer Lee and her um, influence will start to show in the Disney canon. And we may not know until a couple movies into it what the change is. Um, because we, it started a little bit with Frozen. Frozen itself started a, a mini revolution inside the Disney Enlightenment, really. Um, but I think it's going to be something even bigger, I hope. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's just going to be richer, I hope. Yeah. I'm sure we'll probably still get some other sequels like i know they've talked about zootopia 2 for a while yeah so i don't know if we can it's okay if a sequel falls into a next era like rescuers down under falls into the disney renaissance that's fine yes 
The other big news is that Disney Toon Studios is shuttering. Disney's Toon Studios, of course, being the um, animation palace of such hits as Planes and Planes 2, um, but also a goofy movie and -hmm. things like that. Some of these things you might go like, wait, why aren't Chris and Mackenzie talking about that? It's not Disney Animation. It's Disney Toon Studios. Yes. And during this period, um, I believe Chicken Little was the first to have the Mickey Mouse um, Steamboat Willie logo that said Disney Animation Studios to put its stamp on it to say, no, no, no. And we're not just Disney, the huge conglomerate. We're now Disney Animation Studios because Disney's become more than that. They didn't want that confusion to muddy the, muddy the brand in that sense. Mm-hmm. Of no, no, this is Disney feature length animation comes from Disney Animation Studios, not from Disney Toon Studios or, you know, other places that they've been going and they put their brand on where they act as a distributor and not as sole creators. There's lots of Disney animated features and Disney distributed animated features, but there's very few Disney animation features. That's right. If you haven't listened to the first five parts of this. <laughs> um, and you have time. Go go hang out. What Read. read what, we'll listen. wait for six hours. We'll wait for, wait for six hours while you listen to the other five episodes of this. We're now beginning our six hours of silence. Okay, good. You're caught up now. <laughs> wow, that was fast. Um, I'm sure Nigel will add some more in. So... <laughs> Let's let's look at this uh, this period. Um, there are a lot. Of, no, let me start that sentence again. There are a couple of movies in here that people will remember as, oh my gosh, I love that movie. Um, there may be more for people who enjoy cult um, hits, um, but as a whole. This group is a little bit on the lower of the totem pole in terms of being well-remembered or being celebrated by fans and non-fans alike. Yeah, there's a lot of movies here that I remember and go like, oh, that wasn't that bad, but I don't actually remember any specifics about the movie. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, mm-hmm. I think this period does get a bad rap and I've seen different people define it in different ways. Some people pick it up at like Hercules is when it begins, which I think is nonsense. That's nonsense. And if you listen to our last episode, you know, in this series about the Disney Renaissance, you can see why it ends with Tarzan. Mm-hmm. True. You, you know, why Good the plug. Disney Renaissance. <laughs> but I think, I don't know. I. You said that, that, when we talked about it, we said that the thing that killed Disney Renaissance is their over-reliance on the technology. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that, I, don't, I wouldn't say CGI killed Disney animation in the way that some people say that it killed traditional 2D animation. That's not true. Um, while the changeover from 2D animation 
to 3D CGI animation does happen during this period, it's not home on the range that ends this period as the end of 2D animation. It's not the end of 2D animation. Um, and I, f I still feel like that's even... Uh, no, sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I, for me, it's nonsense to say that CGI killed Disney animation because we haven't even talked about yet. Coming up in our final uh, part of the seven-part series is Princess and the Frog. Right. Still yet to come. Mm -hmm. Which is a great movie, and it's mostly traditional animation. Mm -hmm. And I think people thought of what was missing from Disney was the 2D animation. But what was missing from it was story and character. Like that's, that's what it boils down to, story and character. They had, um, and we'll talk about it as we get into the, our two examples, but they have technology and spectacle, visuals and artistry, but character and story is a little bit lower on their priority list <laughs> during this period. Um, even in some of my favorite films that are in this period, like Emperor's New Groove, one of the one of my favorite Disney movies of all time, still suffers from confusion of and strength of story. So there's yeah. <sighs> I'd agree with that. I also love Emperor's New Groove. I think it's one of the best Disney movies. I saw it four times in the theater. Four I believe times. That. I know your sense of humor. <laughs> um, yeah, some people, some reactions I've read on lines. Uh, there are some very vindictive people who say, like, none of these movies are good. People tell you they're good. It's just nostalgia. I don't think it's nostalgia clouding our opinion of Emperor's New Groove. I think it's a genuinely good movie that has weaknesses, but is a genuinely good movie. Mm-hmm. Yes. So what else was going on in the world of animation during the per this particular period? Oh, man, what did not happen here? <laughs> well, in the 90s, there wasn't much as far as CGI features go. You had Toy Story, A Bug's Life, and Toy Story 2. And A Bug's Life did not do a great job selling it. <laughs> yeah. Interesting story, but looking back at that, it's like watching like the battle scenes in Star Wars Phantom Menace. Like, oh, this is... Mm. Mm -mm. No, <laughs> this did not age well, um, animation wise. <clears throat> and so in this period, you have a new millennium where you have all kinds of new animation competition. Pixar hits their stride and starts doing like these almost annual movies. And this is really like the Pixar golden age at this point. Um, and Disney hasn't even bought them yet. Mm -hmm. Um, DreamWorks becomes a legitimate thing with their hit movie Shrek. That's right, I said it. In 2001, winning the first Academy Award for Best Animated Feature. That's right. Disney didn't win the first Academy Award for Best Animated Feature. Not even a Disney subsidiary. DreamWorks and Shrek won. And you can never take that back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you can go back and listen to our episode of Shrek Respective. To hear all of our thoughts 
on the Shrek. origin of the Chris McKenzie Shrek feud. <laughs> Shrek traversy. Shrek traversy. I don't know. I tried for it. It didn't work. Um, yeah, so this starts like an industry of like everyone going like, oh, CGI, that's a great cheap way to make a kid's movie. And you get like this boom of bad movies, I think, outside of Pixar and DreamWorks. And it's still happening. That has not slowed down. If anything, it's sped up. Yeah, but there's a there's like a middle class of that now. (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's true. Um, so you have all these new animation studios and one theory I read online that I don't know of anything to back up. I don't think there's any evidence for this is that with all these new animation studios, you have a lot of talent that might be leaving Disney during this period because there's options if you want to do animated feature films. And who else is Disney working with besides Pixar? Oh, well, of course, at this time, uh, Disney partners with uh, Studio Ghibli to distribute their films. Not necessarily make, but this is like, you know, old school Studio Ghibli, they're distributing. And then I think starting with Howl's Moving Castle. I think so. Somewhere around there, they're like, not really producing. I don't really know how this partnership works. (laughs) I know very little about Miyazaki, which is bad for an animation nerd, I know, but... Here we are. <laughs> so let's let's do a list of the films that are in this period of the Disney canon. So during this post-Disney Renaissance, pre-Disney Enlightenment period, what are the films in this time period? Well, you get uh, Fantasia 2000, and I bet you can't guess what year that's from. 2000. Ah. <laughs> I gave it to you before I, you could say it. <laughs> I, I was too busy. I was overthinking <laughs> it, I suppose. Uh, you get Dinosaur, also from 2000. Uh, the Emperor's New Groove, also from 2000. There's a theme here. Um, Atlantis, The Lost Empire, 2001. Lilo and Stitch, 2002. Treasure Planet, 2002. Brother Bear, 2003. Home on the Range, 2004. Chicken Little, 2005. And Meet the Robinsons, 2007. That's a lot of movies in like a seven and a half year span. Yes. And the fact that it took a little while after Chicken Little to come out with Meet the Robinsons. um, There's a two year gap instead of the usual one year slash six month gap (laughs) um, from the other ones in this period. Um, And part of that was around Meet the Robinsons. Um, John Lasseter acts as executive producer on Meet the Robinsons. So that starts there, and his influence pushes that film. I think it got delayed, pushed back. I was reading that when he started, they were pretty much done and screened it for him, and then because of his influence on the story, um, like 60% of it changed. The villain got better. They added a dinosaur chase sequence, which is like 10 minutes of the movie. <laughs> and I guess they changed the ending. Hmm. Which we'll get to mm-hmm. when we talk about that. So, um, again, I think the two high points 
in it are Emperor's New Groove and Lilo and Stitch. Yeah, agreed. Um, Although I feel like Lilo and Stitch is one of those movies like, that was a great movie, and I remember nothing specific about it. Yeah, um, I rewatch Lilo and Stitch every few years. Um, we have a talking Stitch doll at my house. Um, my phone was named Stitch for a long time. Um, I, I, I think it's one of the more... It's one of the times that they allowed a director's original voice to show through the Disney animation model. So we get um, people like Andreas Deja, who animated, you know, Jafar and animated um, Scar during the Disney Renaissance. And now he's animating Lilo, a round little girl, main character <laughs> hero. Like, that's... That, that's what he's doing now. So that's why her acting is amazing. Lilo is amazing in that film. I should rewatch that. You've just sold me on it. <laughs> I like it. it it's really good. Um, it's really good. They had to retool the ending because of September 11th. They, they stole an airplane and were flying it through a downtown part of a city. And everyone's like, uh, this is no. a bad idea. Can we make it a spaceship? That will fix it. And it it kind of does. So, I mean, I did not see it at the time it came out. So this is uh, the relevancy of time here is a new concept to me for this movie. <laughs> yeah, but I, overall, it doesn't feel like a high point. Some of these have really strong moments, but they're not good as a whole. Like I can say they're... In Brother Bear and Treasure Planet, there are very distinct moments that are gorgeous and really well done, but overall, they just don't land right. They just don't have something that that hits you, and I think that it comes down to story and character. But totally, we'll, we'll get into that. <laughs> I so keep also good for. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I keep saying that, apparently. We'll get to it. We will. Um, also, for context of what's happening at this time, while we may be talking about Disney films, and you, listener, may be thinking, like, oh, I haven't seen any of these. or like, yeah, those were okay. Um, Disney is focused on other things at this time and doing new interesting things. Of course, Pixar is doing Monsters, Inc., Finding Nemo, Incredibles, Cars, Ratatouille, WALL-E. Uh, Disney Live Action is doing... Remember the Titans, Princess Diaries, Pirates of the Caribbean, National Treasure, Chronicles of Narnia. All these, like, 2000s live-action movies you remember and are pretty solid. I gotta say, Disney live-action probably high point is at the same time as this animation period. Yeah, I would agree with that. And then there's all kinds of other partnerships for films like Valiant. Yeah, you remember that one, don't you? I, I do. I never saw it, but I remember it. <laughs> I remembered it when I saw the poster. <laughs> <laughs> and the wild came out during this time with Eddie Izzard as a as a koala. I know it's like the knockoff Madagascar. I've never I, brought myself. I to know watch it, it was, and I only saw it because it was a dis. I thought it was in the Disney canon, and it so it wasn't. It was Disney tunes. They tricked you. They they got me. They got me. I even bought it. Ugh. Uh, on DVD? On DVD. I bought it on DVD because I thought it was part of the Disney canon and had to own everything. Well, 
Maybe you just have to own everything Disney animated feature? Nope. 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 And I already did decide that um, I would not own Cars 2 nor 3. So, sorry, Pixar, but I've already made one deal and <laughs> I, I've been burnt and I don't want to <laughs> make that deal again. Oh. So, okay. Anyway. Let's, should we start by getting into um, one of our examples yeah. from this time period? So, anywho, we've told you about films that we think are great high points this period. Emperor's New Groove and Lilo and Stitch. We're not talking about either of them today. No, I, that's too easy. <laughs> too easy. <laughs> so today we're talking about Atlantis Cold and the Lost Empire and Meet the Robinsons. So one mostly traditional animated and one... I mean, entirely CGI animated. Right. Let's start with um, Atlantis. Let's start there. Okay. Atlantis is where Atlantis. Oh, yeah. With the... See, maybe that's part of the marketing for this. It went all out of the marketing and, like, the logo, the big A over the ocean was, like, entirely CGI. Yeah. Mm. Did you see this one as a kid? Or teenager uh, or college student? I saw it when it was in theaters. <laughs> um, I was a, oh gosh, what, 2001? When in 2001 did Atlantis? I think mid-year. Um, I would have just graduated college. Okay. So I, I was a young, young child, basically. I was about to start high school. <laughs> ah, people are younger than me. So two different perspectives on the movie. <laughs> Just a That's little the bonus. bit. Yeah. Um, I remember going online at the time and trying to watch everything I could about it um, beforehand because their website had stuff and they had all these like breadcrumbs laid out of what is Atlantis and the Shepherd's Journal. And it, they tried to make it this... Um, huge event interactive using online stuff for the first time and yeah like it, it was really try they were trying to be like no no atlantis is real like they tried to turn it into this weird blair witch ish kind of reality thing that they were making up <laughs> um but it was i i remember they were it felt like they were trying to run two things. They were like, hey, it's a Disney movie. And hey, this is not like any Disney movie you've ever seen. Hey, this is a Disney movie. Hey, this is not like any... It, they were trying to run two races at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, Marketing-wise. And um, after watching it, of course, uh, production-wise too, I think. I was reading the first draft of the script... Like the first complete draft was like 156 pages. Oh, as opposed to the usual like 72 or whatever Disney animated movie is. Yeah, Disney animation usually caps around 85 minutes. So, and it, they say they cut characters and entire things, but it feels like, I mean, it feels like the movie could be twice as long. It could be like a season long Disney storytelling event. You know what? That's a remake. Remake it for the Disney streaming service as a season of TV. I'd watch that. Yes. Heartbeat. It's got the characters. It just doesn't have the time to explore them and do anything with that. What was interesting, um, one of my first notes 
um, that I wrote this time rewatching it was speed. All characters talk fast. Like all of them do. Um, you get the guy who played Guido Sarducci and from SNL playing Vinny. Um, you have playing Dr. Sweet, the lawyer from Seinfeld who just talks rapid fire. But even Michael J. Fox is on just like, I don't know if he's actually sped up, but nobody pauses, nobody, their sentences just keep going and going and going and going. And then, hey, we're done with that sentence. Move it on. Plot point, major plot point. Did you miss it? I just said it. Blup. And then they're on to the next scene. Yeah, it, it has, even when they're not speaking, I felt like it had pacing issues. Nothing ever landed except, and we'll talk about this, I think there's a couple sequences at the end that are perfect pacing and spot on and beautiful. Yes. But the one that really stuck with me that I made a note about watching this time is as the sub is going into the water and the the sponsor, Mr. Widmore, whatever his name is, um, you see him like waving to the sub. It's like a shot of his back and then he crosses his finger behind his back and it's like half a second. If this landed, it would have been more ominous and meant something. But I can say like as a first time watcher, probably no one caught that. I... I don't know if I caught it the first time I saw it, but I remember thinking, maybe we should stop, pause this for a second. So let's go back and talk about overall what the story is and who the main characters, definitely plural, are of Atlantis, the Lost Empire. And then we can get into the way the tori- the way the story is told and the way it unravels in ways. So <laughs> and not in a denouement kind of way. We just mean unravels. <laughs> yes. Um they they lose direction. There are many maps in Atlantis and it would have been nice if the storytellers had one as well. So <laughs> <laughs> um Atlantis the Lost Empire starts off with the the legend of Atlantis being buried um, and a quote from Plato. So going being lost, this great civilization who had technology is thrust under the water after a catastrophic event. And then we meet Milo Thatch, um, a archivist and cartographer and linguist um who is basically a over overpaid janitor and he wants to follow in the footsteps of his grandfather and find the lost city of Atlantis and he thinks he knows where it is um based on new translation that he found on on a shield and he ends up being in an expedition put apart put on by this guy, James Whitmore, who has gotten, who knew his grandfather and made a bet that if the grandfather found this MacGuffin of the Shepherd's Journal, that he would finance the whole expedition. And he does. He, he has subs and tanks and drills and crazy and steampunk out the wazoo, it's amazing technology to go find Atlantis. And they get this ramshackle crew and 
They go off and try to find Atlantis. That's the basic setup of it. Mm -hmm. And when I first watched it, Whitmore is set up in all ways to be a villain. From character design to the way his scenes are lit to the people that take Milo to Whitmore. And I can't even remember her name. I've seen this movie seven Helga? times. Helga, thank you. Um, but how bad is that? I can't remember her name after so many times I've seen it. I just know her as Lieutenant um, because that's all they ever call her. Um, but her in this black dress taking Milo off to visit this guy who's this crazy beard and this really ominous talk in front of this giant fish tank and the lighting, it's dark and I, I can just keep saying ominous. It's just so ominous. You think he's a villain. So the point where you were talking about where the the sub is going down and it's playing the Atlantis theme by James Newton Howard, you know, and it's going in and then he does he gives a thumbs up doesn't he whitmore yeah, from like, behind hope you find what you're looking for and then crosses his finger behind his back or something which is what to say like i hope you do or i i know that you're not gonna do it or i want to be rich you know like what's his main deal because it changes by the end. Mm -hmm. His character changes totally by the end. It's kind of like a subplot deus ex machina. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> and we end up the, we end up with this crew of people from Vinny, who is the demolitions expert. Sweet. Dr. Sweet. Who's. The doctor we get cookie who is voiced by jim varney who's the the chef quote unquote chef i should say um who else do we get um what's her face who's like the main one of them she has the emotional change ha hang on hang on hang on uh uh audrey Audrey, yes. Thank you. Um, who is the mechanic? We get Mole, who is the yeah. digger. Um, for lack of remembering her name, Lunch Lady Doors from The Simpsons. Right. <laughs> I don't even know why she's in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, to take pictures. Yeah. Um, and then we get... Of course, James Garner as the general. And I can't even remember his name either. Rourke. Rourke. Yeah, but there's a lot of characters. So. We haven't got to the Atlanteans yet. I know. We, this is just the, the, the above worlders <laughs> who are going down to look for Atlantis. We haven't gotten to the chief and Kida and all the extras from Atlantis because no one else matters. Mm -hmm. It's just those two characters because they didn't have room for others. Mm. <laughs> Man. 
Yeah, so they're all going underground. They go to the water. They go through, like, the weird... What was probably five episodes of a TV show, like The Trials and the Tunnels. And instead of a song, they have character development? Development's not the right word. Character fleshing out? Yeah, they don't really... They have one scene where they're all around a campfire. And they're all telling their stories. And you get the... The reason why they're all trying to get money, why they're all on the exposition, like all their their I wants. That's that's all you get. Um, and that's only so that way later on, Milo has that information to use it to his advantage. Mm-hmm. So it's I don't the hard part about it, the thing that I keep, there are two things that I wrote down in terms of style that I wasn't expecting. We get a lot of wipes in this movie. So I start thinking that I'm watching a a Star Wars movie. (laughs) So there's just wipe left, wipe right, like keep wiping up and down. There are lots of wipes. Um, But the other thing that, that got me was it feels a little bit like an Indiana Jones movie if you put uh, if you put a really clumsy 19 early 1980s Michael J Fox in the role of Indiana Jones ah <sighs> I mean, okay, to address that, I think there's a lot that's already been said on the internet about where these influences come from. Like, very clearly now, like, looking at the giant A over the ocean marketing and the character of Milo, like, clearly it's Stargate's, like, Daniel character (laughs) in a Disney movie. That's clearly what this is. (laughs) Um, And it's partly inspired by like 20,000 leagues under the sea. So yeah, it is like mid 20th century pulp and it feels very comic booky because it's designed by Mike Mignola. <laughs> yes. Mike Mignola of Hellboy did all the character and world design of this movie. There's a great quote that I found uh, about why this looks like no other Disney movie. And it's Mike saying, I remember watching a rough cut of the film and these characters have these big square weird hands And I said to the guy next to me, those are cool hands. And he says to me, yeah, they're your hands. We had a whole meeting about how to do your hands. (laughs) And it's just how he draws his characters with these weird square hands with fingers, um, which works. And we'll send out in the show notes links to the original character designs, which look like a Hellboy comic book version of Atlantis. They do. They have this. I mean, as we've talked about there, Disney has a tradition of matching design where you know with way back in hercules and things like that with the world that they're trying to build um and the one thing that i noticed and thought about in atlantis the first time i saw it was fingernails like (laughs) like, (laughs) i just remember thinking that like these characters have fingernails like they they have triangle fingernails and it's it's such an interesting choice for them to have fingernails and also blood 
that is spilled um, in a Disney movie, which is surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there are lots of things that are surprising to find in a Disney movie <laughs> that happen in this film. Oh, man. I've got a whole list of you. You have a list? list? Yeah, go give me, give me the list. I kept marking down. Like, the first time it happened, I was like, this film is raunchier than the usual Disney movie. And then I kept writing them down. Uh, like, the beginning, the film noir, like, Helga in her black dress, and, like, it slips down her shoulder, like Jessica Rabbit. Yeah. I was like, whoa, 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 what's <laughs> happening? Uh, and I've, at first, I felt okay, because it kind of, like, evened out with Widmore dropping his robe, and there's, like, a back shot of the financer's butt. Um, and then, what's-her-face, Lunch Lady Doris is a bunch of announcements on the sub. And this one's very... I had to be an adult to get this. Whoever took the elf from the nautical sign, ha-ha, very funny. And someone just took the letter A out of nautical. They say that in a Disney movie. Tonight's dinner is baked beans, musical program to follow. At one point, they get to a volcano that's, like, plugged up. And the same character says, I get the same problem with sauerkraut. Mm-hmm. It's just a lot. It's a lot. It's funny. And I don't think as a kid I got any of these. And you're not supposed to. It is significantly more adult. Which I think um, was surprising to me when I saw it. I was like, this is not a family movie. This is aged up. This is like maybe 10 and up to even yeah. un- to even understand what what's going on because there's not a lot of action it's all most of the story is told as opposed to, i mean there there are action sequences but that's what they are um you had this great quote <laughs> from the production shirts <laughs> yes of atlantis uh, I guess the crew made production shirts for Atlantis that said, less songs, more explosions. <laughs> being about coming out of the Disney Renaissance, and a lot of the people working on it at a high level being from the Disney Renaissance, excited to not do a musical movie. <laughs> and so they had less songs and more explosions. And it's the, it's the first PG rating since Black Cauldron. Yeah, so when Chris but- says aged up, we mean PG. Yeah, not a ton, but but up from G to PG. Um, and if you want to listen to our episode of Black the, about the Black Cauldron, you can listen to that. Which, side note, I just finished reading that book this morning. Oh, hey, congratulations. So, thank you. Um, good stuff. <laughs> Has almost nothing to do with the film, um, which is a problem. <laughs> But I think when when I'm looking at Atlantis, I think a lot of it is, I mean, there is a lot of CGI in this. There's a ton of CGI. There there are flying um, fish vehicles. Um, Most of the military vehicles are CGI. There's airplanes. There's balloons. Just stuff is um, the Leviathan alone. This giant sea monster that yeah. crashes the sub. Um, but it's done so well. It is. And you don't question it because it looks 
hand drawn. It looks of the world. But I. Well, so part of this, I don't know if you're about to say this or not. I wasn't, but go ahead. Okay. Um, I mean, after coming out of like the Renaissance movies with Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast, we can tell like, here's the CGI shot in this movie. Um, like the Aladdin lava race. Mm, that's another thing that doesn't age well. I love Aladdin, but the lava part. Ooh, man. It's like a 1993 ride at Disney World, which is probably the plan. Um, <laughs> so in Atlantis, to blend the current technological level of CGI with the hand animation, they put less detail in both the CGI and the background animation. So it was a very like color-blocking, contrasting look to it. So mm. when you have the brown sub with very little detail in the dark blue ocean with very little detail... It stands out, and they look the same. Mm-hmm. So it's very well done in terms of blending. And it's funny that you mentioned the the Aladdin lava scene, because I wrote, <laughs> what if every other scene is the Aladdin lava scene? <laughs> like, that's, that's what this is. Like, what, if, what if every other scene happens to be a giant action extravaganza and that's yep. i think that's exaggerating but not by much not by much um we have the giant scene of the leviathan where i don't know how many people died in like less than two <laughs> minutes of film they started with 200 and i think they end up with 20 or 30 so a ton of people die left and right. Like they, it's not even a delay that somebody dies. They they get on the ex- escape subs and then boom, gone. Like people just ah screaming left and right, dead. They skim right over the part of like Audrey closing the doors, the compartments are flooding, and like locking two people behind her. Oh gosh, that scene. Oh my gosh. Yeah, she's like, well, if I'm gonna get out, <laughs> there's not even like- the. She's going to try to save those other guys who are like, sorry, like, we understand. We kept this scene in, but we don't dwell on it. I would have been fine without that scene for the movie. If we're going to put that scene in, I want to see repercussions. Like, have her think about it later. Like, I'll leave people behind, but not Milo Thatch. Yeah. It's like, they owe or <laughs> They owed me money. You know, something. I don't know. <laughs> that had been a little too dark. <laughs> oh, I know. But that's that's for this TV series where we, we see them treat her that's poorly. True. So when they die, she doesn't feel bad about it. HBO's 12 season um, Atlantis, The Lost Empire. <laughs> HBO slash Disney. Now, that would be an interesting show. <laughs> Put Airing on HBO from Disney which is, I think, what they were trying to do with the movie. (laughs) But they didn't quite... I think the problem was they couldn't go as far as it looked like they wanted to. Mm -hmm. That's... They were pushing right up against the edge, and then they had to do something silly. And, And while the silliness provided a great reprieve from the unending action... Like, Vinny, everything he says is golden. Everything he says is golden. Like the the bridge creation scene. Hey, look, I made a bridge. Took like 
Nine seconds. Like, it's just amazing. Ten, eight. <laughs> Ten, maybe, but it's just, it's just hilarious. Um, but I feel like there's not enough story and character. They couldn't make it longer, which it definitely needed to be. So, Chris, I have a serious question for you. Okay. What did work for you in this movie? <sighs> there were... It, it's moments. It's only moments. So, for me, one of the first things that worked is the shot of Milo in the submarine underwater where it moves and goes past him and he's staring and he's just completely shocked uh, about what's happening. That's a really strong moment. It's where the visuals and the music and you get a little bit of a sense of character at that point. Um, most of the Atlantis scenes later actually land, I think, once they get to it, sorry, Spoilers. Once they get to Atlantis and find people alive, I think most of that works pretty well. Most of Milo and Kita together works um, because there's human interaction happening. It's it's two people who need something from each other. And, mm. I, and I wrote down the halfway point is getting to Atlantis and... Um, Milo and Kita both asking questions of each other. Like, this is a scene, it's really well done, and they spend a lot of time on it. What is your country of origin? When did the floodwaters recede? Well, How did wait you- Wait a minute, I got a few questions for you too. So let's do this, okay? You ask one, then I'll ask one, then you, then me, then, well, you get it. Very well. What is your first question? Well, okay, uh, how did you get here? Well, I mean, not you personally, but your, your culture. I mean, how did all of this end up down here? It is said that the gods became jealous of Atlantis. They sent a great cataclysm and banished us here. All I can remember is the sky going dark and people shouting and running. Whoa, back up. We, we, what are you telling me? Do you remember because you were there? No, that's, that's impossible because, I mean, that would make you, you know, 85, 88, 100 years old. Yes. Oh, well, hey, uh, looking good. Uh, <clears throat> you have another question for me? Yes. How is it you found your way to this place? Well, I'll tell you, it wasn't easy. If it weren't for this book, we never would have made it. And I think it's the... Um, I speak pretty, pretty girl scene where she's like getting ready to go underwater. And I was like, really, Disney? That was another really Disney <laughs> moment. Yeah. yeah. I, I, swim, well, I swim pretty girl. Pretty, pretty good. But I think other than that, which was kind of like weird, but I didn't hate it. Um, that scene really works for me. The mm -hmm. diving for the mural. It's great pacing. Um, it's good character. Like you say, if two people need something from each other. And they're both discovering something together and being excited for different reasons. Mm -hmm. It's, And a lot of it is done in silence, but it takes its time. The, it, it, it allows it to linger there. The music gets smaller and you get to see the artwork and it's just, it, it's a really good sequence. 
I think similarly, another sequence that really worked for me is when they finally find the heart of Atlantis, which, side note, wonder if that inspired the first episode of DuckTales. Um, <laughs> when they find the heart of Atlantis and then Keita, like, goes and merges with it, and then she's, like, walking towards the heroes with glowing eyes and the rocks fall one by one behind her. And the splash goes on her like a orb. So you yes. see this invisible orb and the water's hitting it, going around. It's like, ah, oh. So good. <laughs> so yeah. good. That That is a remarkable scene. Um, and I think for me, it's just tiny little dialogue things. Like the dialogue works, but the characters don't quite. Like the... I feel like if we had gotten rid of a couple of the characters or gave them more time to actually do something, it would be a better movie. Like, if we went down to like Sweet and Audrey for the side characters, that'd be fine. Oh, I, you need Vinny, though. I mean, Vinny's funny. Okay, maybe Sweet, Audrey, and Vinny. Hey, Milo, you got something sporty, you know? Like a tuna. Like a tuna? Like, ah. Uh, everything he says is golden. <laughs> Every, I just wait for him to come back on, on this. You know, the one moment where he's just coming out and he's holding like a stick of dynamite that's on fire for no reason. It's like, <laughs> it's like why? What are you doing? Um, I, I don't know. I think a lot of the Milo stuff did work, though. For me, Milo's character worked but yeah. because there were so many other people he got lost mm -hmm. like the moment that he decides to go by himself to save Kita, he's like i'm doing this you don't have to come with me or the or the moment that he speaks up for himself and and scolds them after they've turned on him and they're about to go take everything. And he throws all their dreams back at them. You know, I bet your father's going to be proud of you now. But you're going to have this. You know, you're going to have everything you wanted. That's terrific. And all it's going to yeah. take is for these people to die. Okay. Um, go ahead. I'm thinking about the number of characters in this movie and yes. why it doesn't work. Because mm -hmm. I don't think that Lion King is like any fewer characters. You're right. But they don't all want something. Like, what does Zazu want? He's the guy who's a plot device. <laughs> I don't know. You know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying. All of them have a desire and all of them have character change and all of them seem to be equal. So it's meant mm -hmm. to be the team together. So usually... We're used to one protagonist or um, you have usually in sports movies or some adventure movies, you'll have a team of people together, but there's still the story of one or two people who are the main characters. Um, but I can see trying to give other people a reason to be there, but it feels like Disney's version of the Expendables before the Expendables came out. <laughs> like that's, you know, you try to make everybody interesting. So that way everyone signs up to do the movie, but not, it can't, 
the plot itself can't sustain that many protagonists. If Mike Magnola got to write this, five of them would have been dead before the end. And there were so many casualties. I could see Audrey letting the other guys go and her dying. Like, oh man, yes. Like she should have died. She, oh, sorry. But in a sacrifice Audrey. way. In a sacrifice, good way. She should have died. I can see Mole dying. Mole should have been gone. Yeah, Mole and Cookie. Mole and, and Cookie. Doors. Definitely. Um, like, I feel like Helga would have come out alive as a good guy and stayed in Atlantis as well. And Sweet also would have sacrificed himself. Like, maybe, like, Vinny returns to the surface as the sole survivor. I think Sweet would have died, like, at the last minute cutting yeah. Kita free. Like that would have been his death. Like he stayed there and he has one last thing to saw and he gets shot and he's just like one last link and he does it and he falls. Sweet is like the missing link in this movie entirely. Yeah. Like there's the one scene when everybody's leaving and abandoning Milo and he's throwing the dreams back in the face. Like you say, and sweet's not there. And then he like calls Milo. He's been with the king the whole time. They're gonna leave Sweet behind too, and they're not talking about this at all. Yeah, I did. He's this, inherently good. This was the first time that I noticed. Wait, he he was with the king, taking care of him because he's a doctor, just like not even caring about his mission. Like, that is a good guy, but what happened? Like, where was he? It's like, okay, Milo, you guys just met him like two weeks ago. Okay, sweet. You've been with him for forever. He's been on so many expeditions. Yep. And the reason this one's different is people are alive. <laughs> people are alive. We're going to go. We're robbing a grave, but there are people alive here. <laughs> like, like, that's the difference. They thought they were going to rob a grave, but it turned out to be a civilization. <laughs> They're going to rob a grave, but also leave Milo there the entire time. I don't know. Well, I don't think they were going to have to leave him because what they were going to do is just grab whatever was there because obviously there are no Atlanteans still alive because that was thousands of years ago. Mm. It gets very complicated and very convoluted. It does. Should we talk about another movie with a lot of characters? <laughs> we should. Um, and this, I forgot about how much this one had um, going on in it. Yeah. Meet the Robinsons, which I ain't never seen before. Um, really? <clears throat> I'd never seen it. People oh. recommended it. Never watched it. It's been on my Netflix queue for ages. So, um, do you want to try telling what this movie's about <laughs> since you just saw it? I don't know if I can. Um, so, Lewis is an orphan who was abandoned as a baby at this orphanage, and he and his roommate Goob have been essentially raised to the age of 12 by Mildred, who's his mother this whole time. My biggest dramaturgical problem with this movie. Yeah. The orphan head Mildred loves him, wants the best for him. And he's like, I don't have a mom. Like, you're, Mildred's clearly your mom. Anyway, um, so Lewis is doing his inventor thing. And he's keeping, like, Goob, his roommate, up late at night. And um, 
rather than trying to like interview and meet parents to adopt him, he keeps doing these inventions to try and scan his brain and remember what his real mom looks like. And then this other kid comes back in time to like save his invention because some evil man with a bowler hat and a curly mustache is after it. Um, and then they go to the future and they meet all these crazy people. That's the future kid's house. I know you're lost already. I am too. And then they have these crazy adventures. And then they have crazy adventures with the crazy people again, but life-threatening because a T-Rex is there. Um, and then some of the time travel timey-wiminess starts to unravel and you figure out that, spoilers, um, the bowler hat mustache man is Goob as an adult. And Lewis is actually Cornelius, the absent Tom Selleck-looking dad of the family. And the bowler hat is an evil robot. For some reason. Yeah, I don't know if I could have done that better. Um, because that's <laughs> basically what happens. That is what happens in that movie. Yeah. And my preface to our discussion... Rather than us focusing on some of the negative parts of this, I think we just have to, as a podcast, admit that almost none of this movie makes scientific or dramaturgical sense. Okay, and now let's move on and talk about character. I wholeheartedly agree. (laughs) Um, Because um, in interviews with the director, who also voiced Bowler Hat Guy, Um, he talked about how personal this story was to him um, being adopted and wanting to be uh, a story about adoption and finding your place in the world and who you belong to and what does family mean and what do you, you as a person mean in a family and what is the right family and where do you belong and where do you fit Um, So he talked about how personal it was to him. And what's interesting is they chose to do that and add all this story onto a book, A Day with Wilbur Robinson, which apparently has none of that adoption stuff in it. It's it's just like, here's a silly, crazy family. Let's go to Wilbur's house and meet his silly family. So the time... No time travel? The time travel stuff, the orphan stuff, all the things that make the plot confusing um, are added to this just a crazy story of a crazy family. I do think that the adoption story works with the crazy family. It does. Yeah, I, I see that working. The time travel... Uh, it's hard to make time travel work. (laughs) Yet it's so popular. Yes. And as good as Danny Elfman's score is for this movie, I don't think it can help um, time travel feel good. But we'll we'll leave time travel out. As you said, let's just talk about story. I wanted to add that as we get in about the characters, that how personal it was to the director, writer, creator, um, to insert himself as, essentially as Lewis. And that shines. I think those moments, I think the heartbreaking, the most heartbreaking moment of this movie for me is after spending a day with the crazy family 
and fending off the T-Rex chase. <laughs> and then they're all there like, Lewis, you're great. And they found out that he's an orphan. Like, you can stay maybe forever. Do you want to be a Robinson? And after oh. all these interviews that he's been on, and he doesn't like any of the families, and he likes this family, he's like, yeah, I want to. And then Wilbur rips his hat off, and they all realize that who Lewis is. They're like, no, you can't stay. You can't be here. So it's being rejected by a family that he finally wants to be part of. Mm-hmm. That is a really heartbreaking moment. That's the core of the movie for me. And it's great. It's like this nougat center wrapped in <laughs> confusing time travel caramel. <laughs> I, I totally agree. I think <laughs> when the movie... The movie works mostly when it gets to the future. Once they arrive in the future, and not just because of the today land joke, um, or <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but they, it works because it's really disorienting to meet all these characters. But it's just this silliness that's happening. Like, let's just be silly for a while. It's just so fun and everything's rounded edges and art deco-y and it's like a 1940s view of the future, but with bubbles and everything's soft and pretty and bright colors. Um, it's just a really great sequence. Yeah. Um, and I think most of the interactions between... Wilbur and Lewis work amazingly well once they're in the future. Their, yes. Their fights between each other. Before then, getting to that point is rough. And I think trying to wrap things up afterwards, it's like we have to construct all this craziness to get them to the future. And then... We have to unravel all that stuff we've did and, and put things back in an orderly fashion. So I think it's the tying things up to get them to the future and give them reason to go to the future and the unraveling stuff that, that causes a problem. But anytime Wilbur yeah. and Lewis are together in the future, it's, it's great. Yeah, there's a lot of struggle to get them to the future, I think, at the beginning. Like, there's a lot of exposition that's just given. Like, I think Wilbur even says it at one point. Like, I could lose my badge and we just met, but let me tell you what's going on and why I need this. <laughs> like, he just flat out says, like, here's the exposition. Yes. And there's even the sequence, which I laughed at in the theater, where he's like, okay, what do you know? Who, who, who have you met? And he lists all the Robinsons and how they're all related, which to this day, I still don't understand it. Like I tried to watch <laughs> it this time. I was like, okay, I'm really going to know who's related to who. It's wonderful. It just goes by so fast. And it's like, and then what does Cornelius look like? Uh, Tom Selleck. Uh, which <laughs> is a great gag. There's a lot of like some very like not Disney things that happen in that Tom Selleck portrait is one of them. It's very SpongeBob. Because it looks like Tom Selleck. It looks like a live-action, drawn <laughs> Tom Selleck. It's not even like a, a CGI version of Tom Selleck. It's like, no, we just we put a um, 
meet the Robinsons filter on a Tom Selleck picture in Photoshop and plugged it in the movie. Yep. <laughs> it's great. See, you're laughing. There's good gags here. Exactly. There are. I And um, some of the stuff with Carl, the robot, is a lot of fun. But it doesn't connect. It doesn't. It's about gags and not about character. Like, it's not, not specific about a relationship between them. Yeah. It's, it's just about something silly. It felt like they almost tried to make a relationship story between Goob and Lewis. But, man, I just hate Goob as a kid. <laughs> like, it's, it's very flat delivered. It doesn't add anything at the beginning. Um, I don't think it's very funny. Like, the pacing is all wrong. It's hard to understand what he's saying. But at the same time, like, then the moment the bowler hat guy just says, I just want to ruin some little kid's life. I'm like, you're goob. You're goob in the future. Like, I just knew it. It was too obvious. Like, who wants to ruin this kid's life? Um, only goob as a motivation. <laughs> We've only been introduced to three characters. And uh, only three of them make sense. And it's yeah. not going to be the science teacher. Yeah. 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 I'm going to talk about Doris. The hat. The Cybermen of this movie. <laughs> yes. I don't know why it turns into a Doctor Who story for the last ten minutes. It really does. I didn't realize that. But yes, it totally does. Oh, <laughs> you're right. The last... 10 minutes becomes Day of Doris. <laughs> and I'm not going to let you win because I'm the doctor. And I will stop you. It's so confusing. I don't know what to do with it. It's scary. It's intense, especially if you're a little kid. Uh, I can say, having watched this movie with Jack a few months ago, yeah, it is very scary if you're a little kid. Um, it turns into a horror movie. It's like the same moment from Boss Baby that made Jack leave the theater. You know, it's just like intense for no dramaturgical reason. Just let's make this terrifying. I mean, it's intense for a story reason of we have to have a good villain here at the end. But yeah, I guess. But is it the right villain? Is Doris the right villain? Is Doris slash the bowler hat guy the right villain? Because here's the thing. We have, we have Lewis, who is an inventor. A op he doesn't have optimism in the beginning. I mean, he has some, but... Mm -hmm. So you're either going to tell the story of how he became optimistic or you're going to tell the story of how he failed. And so Wilbur Robinson has to go back to either save his father or prevent his father from becoming something. I know that those are kind of the same thing, but it's very different whether you're going back to save somebody so they can be something as opposed to stop somebody from becoming something. Does that make sense at all? 
No. Yes. No, okay. I, th- I do think it makes sense. Um, maybe Wilbur isn't trying to save or stop the right person. Maybe he should be trying to save or stop Goob, and there's more like... Goob is actually just envious that Lewis gets adopted and then turns into a bad guy and doesn't have a family of his own. And maybe there's something to be said there that kind of fits more in the theme. Mm. And that's kind of glanced over that he stayed in the orphanage even after it closed down. Like he's been alone. Yeah. All these years. I mean, I thought another heart heartfelt moment is when at the end, they ask him if he wants to become a Robinson, and he just kind of disappears. He kind of walks off. Mm-hmm. It's like, we're accepting you. You're weird. You're strange. You're our friend. or you're your dad's friend. Do you want to be part of his family? Yeah. Do you want to build a snowman? Yeah. I did enjoy the... Um, where he's telling his backstory. And he's like, yes, they all hated me. And, like, cool binder, Goob. Hey, Goob, you want to come over to my house and play? Like, <laughs> like he totally misremembers what the past was. He has this narrative of everyone hating. Like, hey, cool binder, you want to come play? It's just, Ugh. it's just, which says a lot about him as a character, but it doesn't, it doesn't land. I mean, it lands as a joke, but doesn't land as a character device. Like, there's not... Yeah. In a, in a way, Goob is a, a pawn um, for Doris, which makes sense because Doris is a controlling robot who doesn't want to be enslaved as a bowler hat. But it it just lessens his his power. It and because he's such a he's such a fool too. He's completely incompetent as a villain where yeah it's like he's meant to be silly but they couldn't find a balance of like silly and dangerous yeah which i think is like why they invented doris in the story because i think i was reading that doris was invented after john lasseter got involved really Mm -hmm. to make the villain more serious Hmm. Okay, that maybe that's why it feels so strange. <laughs> like Dor- all of Doris stuff feels kind of tacked on. It's a different movie. It's a well done movie. Um, not to say it's more well done than Meet the Robinsons, the rest of it, but it's it's just it's like a different thing. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So, the interesting thing that I do think we have to talk about here, having not seen this movie before, I realize why this is the perfect ending for part six of our series, is because the key thing in the movie is um, the dad's mantra, keep moving forward. And Lewis starts to feel accepted when he fails at something, and they all congratulate him and say, keep moving forward. Failure is good. You learn from it. Mm -hmm. And they end the movie with a quote from Walt Disney, around here, however, we don't look backwards for very long. We keep moving forward, opening up new doors and doing new things. And curiosity keeps leading us down new paths. 
And I think John Lasseter selected that specifically for the end of this movie. I keep that quote. Um, I have a, a database of all my play submissions. And on the page where I fill out the information, it has that quote on there with keep moving forward in bold. So it reminds me that this project, whatever it is, is not the end all be all. It's a step towards the next thing. And I will take whatever I learned from this one and do something better. So you're exactly right. This is the transition phase and you see the transition in it. Mm -hmm. You see the transition happening. I don't want to say in real time, but almost in real time, you see the transition from um, getting a renewed sensibility. Um, and so when we go into part seven and we start talking about Bolt and the Disney Enlightenment, um, then they get a little bit more sure-footed about what, what we're actually doing again. And some people count Bolt as what we would call part six, but we consider Bolt completely separate because we have much more, it's much more independent feeling and feels more like the rest of the movies up until today. Mm-hmm. I, um, and especially with the, and we're not talking about Bolt um, today, but especially with a lot of the production behind the scenes stories, it really is a reinvention and it is, something new beginning it is a beginning piece it's not something ending it's a revolution starting mm. so mm. Mackenzie, do you have a favorite thing from one of the two films that we watched i do i have a cheat of two favorite things one is a concept and one is an actual moment <laughs> um i just have to reiterate again how much I love the design and background story of Atlantis. Like, that's what I remembered before rewatching it. Like, oh, I really like how that looked. Mm. Knew nothing more about it uh, in terms of from when I first watched it until a week ago. Um, and I really think it's a lot of Mike Bignola's influence. Mm -hmm. And this is really, it's interesting to me reading about this movie gaining a new cult following because people are discovering his influence on it and the interesting designs. So that is particularly interesting and cute to me. Or my favorite actual moment is from Atlantis when Milo's talking to Whitmore and he has all these like butts, like I can't do this because. Okay, I, I have to quit my job. It's done. You resigned this afternoon. I did? Yep, don't like to leave loose ends. Uh, my apartment, I I'm gonna have to give notice. Taken care of. My clothes? Packed. My books? In storage. My cat? <laughs> my gosh. That is a really great moment. My gosh. How about you? Um, for me, I just always loved Dr. Sweet's line. Um, and I think it's just because it's happened so fast where he just, he's, they're asking him about, it's the campfire scene and they're asking about Mole's story. And then he says, um, Dr. Sweet says to Milo, trust me on this one. You don't want to know. Audrey, don't tell it. You shouldn't have told me, but you did. And now I'm telling you, you don't want to know. <laughs> it's just a great moment. I don't know why that's my favorite moment. It's just like. It's just, you shouldn't have told me, but you did. And I'm telling you, you don't want to know. Like, <laughs> it's just. It's great. It's just, it preserves and deepens the mystery. It's just so good. I, I, and 
it's moments like that where I'm like, yes, it's about all of them. But of course, that's that's the problem. But mm, there's mm. Mm. complicated dramaturgical feelings. I, I don't know what I feel. <laughs> Speaking of I don't know what I feel, should we talk about homework time? Let's. For next time, uh, there's a new Netflix show from DreamWorks Animation, Harvey Street Kids. Watch at least the first episode and then uh, pick something else you're choosing. And we're going to explore uh, what Harvey Street Kids is and why it's interesting. As always, thank you to our engineer, Nigel Cotino, and to Jacob Reed for our theme music. And you can find us on the web. Let us know what you thought about Atlantis or Meet the Robinsons if you have very strong feelings let us know in 180 characters on Twitter at WG Animated on Facebook. Like us, like our page, share this episode, facebook.com slash WG Animated. And you can find links to show notes and we'll have lots of fun goodies for you to watch and peruse on our Tumblr, writersgetanimated.tumblr.com. Well, we did a podcast, took like our... Maybe our half. Good night, everybody.